You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In this episode of Radio Free Humanity, we have three guests, Ravi Bally, Michael Fitzpatrick, and John Gillett. All three are from the UK. We're going to be talking about the UK publication Spiked Online and Spiked Online's criticism of the science around COVID-19 and public policy around containing COVID-19. We're going to be advancing some critiques of Spiked Online's critiques. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. Today in the current event section, we're going to be talking about the new Georgia voting law, which was passed recently. In response to Democrats' win in the state in November and uh, their Senate wins in January, Republicans have responded with a raft of voting regulations that are aimed at disenfranchising Democrats and black voters and ensuring Republican political dominance in a state that is changing demographically and politically. And, of course, Georgia's Republican election officials and Republican governor were under fire by Trump just a few months ago for refusing to overthrow the election in Trump's favor. But unless anyone thought that was from some deep moral high ground that they stood on, here they are a few months later passing laws to to, to, to delay the groundwork for Republicans to overturn future election results. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the one that is most egregious is the provision that lets the state legislature uh, have ultimate control over all of the elections, and that includes black areas, includes Atlanta, and, and so forth, and they can just nullify the decision of the voters if they want, which is, you know, what Trump wanted, but he didn't get, and now the law lets them do that. That provision in the law basically says there are no more democratic elections in the state of Georgia. Because the state legislature can determine who's the winner. They can say nothing in Atlanta counts because it's a corrupt city. But all, all, the whole Donald Trump line, which it basically comes down to these are not real Americans. They're blacks, they're liberals, they're Jews, they're whatever they are. You know, and that's a, a very widespread spread feeling on the right that they're like the only real Americans, you know. So the rest of us don't count and our votes shouldn't count and so forth. Yeah, and none of this is surprising, right? I mean, we've seen this coming for years. Everyone's been talking about how the demographics and politics of the country are changing in ways that are going to make it harder and harder for Republicans, if they keep pursuing their these types of politics, harder and harder for them to win elections in a lot of places. And their really only chance of maintaining dominance as the party of white nationalism is through overturning democratic institutions and finding ways to stay in power despite what voters in their areas want. So the real question now is just whether they're going to get away with it or whether there will be some checks on their power, maybe in the courts, maybe in Congress with this H.R. 1 voting bill that Democrats are kind of trying to pass, uh, or maybe in the streets with people turning out to to protest and, and, and hold these people accountable. Yeah, and, and possibly the boycotts might work.
Right, right. There's been discussion of boycott. Boycott, yeah, boycott activity. I don't think it was an outright boycott, but boycott activity is beginning against Atlanta-based businesses, uh, Coca-Cola that you may have heard of, Delta Airlines, and the players in the Major League Baseball. You know, they're slated to have the All-Star game in, in Atlanta, uh, and they're making moves to try to get the league to move that out, and then there's the PGA. Some combination of this might help. The, the, the really interesting thing is this. The people who have been studying, you know, the details of election results have said, in particular, the early voting does not seem to have helped the Democrats as against the Republicans. You know, it just shifted the Democratic vote earlier fewer Democratic votes came in late, or there was a very minor effect. And so people are saying that, you know, the, the people who do the, the, the real fine-grained, you know, analysis are saying it, it doesn't look like a lot of this has a, a, any impact because people, they they vote early, they vote early, if they vote late, they vote late, you, you, you cut down on the amount of early voting, they'll just vote later. The, the problem is, I accept that, that that's what's going on so far. That's what went on in, in 2020. But there, there's a point that's going to be reached when, you know, you're forcing people essentially to vote more and more on election day, you know, and you're, you're cutting down the, the hours that they can vote. And then they restrict the number of uh, polling places in black areas. And they do all kinds of tricky things to tell people that they're polling place is somewhat different than what it actually turns out to be and they want to cast a provisional ballot you know because they were told the wrong thing and then they don't have a right to a provisional ballot and they're standing in these long lines and people in Georgia say nobody can give you food or water you know while you're standing in line Uh, I mean eventually that has to have some effect so it may, maybe it didn't have any effect, the expansion, the contraction of early voting and all of this, but it, it, eventually it's got to have an effect. Yeah, it's just amazing to me how out in the open the blatant racism and anti-democratic nature of this law is. Republicans, yeah, they might have some lip service to voter fraud and, and stolen elections or what have you, but it's so obvious to everyone on both sides of the issue that that's not what it's about, that it's just about racism and political dominance and this is like where politics are now in this country just sort of blatant sort of power grabs and and in your face racism and white nationalism yeah yeah i think this is a really important point yeah i mean four or five years of donald trump convinced them that their dog whistle strategy was a problem because only the dogs could hear it and just really virulent in-your-face racism by Trump, and then, of course, the insurrection that he incited, and the Republican base stuck with him even then. That's the, the, the this series of events leading to this. This is what the Republican, the Trumpite base, wants. They want to disenfranchise black people and basically anybody who doesn't think like them because anybody who doesn't think like them is not a real American, you know. So they're 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 down with this for the most part. In principle, should everybody have a, you know a right to vote? People will say yeah, but when push comes to shove, and it's a question of your side losing the election, people don't don't want that. So I I think it's it's true that they did everything they could 
to be as in your face as possible and as racist as, as possible. There's a bunch of white men in a closed room underneath, I was told because I haven't seen it, but there was a picture of a black prison labor camp, you know, that they're signing this thing under. And while they're there behind closed doors, a black state legislator, she goes up to the the door of, of the closed room and starts knocking on it. She was just knocking on the door and they arrest her and they want to put her away for 10 years. You know, they didn't have to do that, right? So, so, so what are they trying to communicate there? And it's not just Georgia, right? That's the other thing, is this is a nationwide strategy. There's over 250 bills in uh, what uh, over 40 states, you know, among them to restrict voting rights going on now. Yeah, it's definitely a shot across the bow or an opening salvo in a long battle. So we'll have to see what happens. There's a lot of places where this could really backfire on the Republicans. Uh, so yeah, everything's up in the air right now. But this is all the time we have for this current event section. Up now, a discussion on COVID containment measures. We have a full house today on Radio Free Humanity, five of us in total with three guests. We're going to be talking about containment measures that have attempted to curtail the spread of the coronavirus and critiques of those containment measures that have been voiced by people around the so-called leftist publication Spiked Online, a a British publication. Two of our authors, John Gillett and Michael Fitzpatrick, have recently penned critiques of Spiked Online's anti-containment writings. So we invited them on the podcast today to talk about what's wrong with those people at Spiked Online. Um, John Gillett is author of Bioscience, Governance, and Politics and co-author of Science and the Retreat from Reason. He's a degree in mathematics and a PhD in the sociology of science. Michael Fitzpatrick is a general practitioner and author of The Tyranny of Health, Doctors, and the Regulation of Lifestyle and MMR and Autism, What Parents Need to Know. He's been working in the Hackney COVID-19 hot hub and the Hackney COVID Vaccination Center throughout the pandemic. Uh, both Michael and John are from the UK, and so is another of our guests, Ravi Bally, who's been on the podcast before. Ravi works with MHI in the UK, and he was nice enough to introduce us to John and Michael and help organize this conversation. And as always, you're joined by myself, Brendan Cooney, and Andrew Kleiman. So, John and Michael, I was surprised when I read both of your pieces, which are a medium, by the way, for listeners. We'll link to them. Um, I w- when I read both your pieces to discover that people at Spiked Online were advocating such seemingly reactionary positions, questioning the danger of COVID, questioning the whether containment measures actually stop the spread of COVID, questioning the science behind like the the, the fatality you know rates and things like that. Um, what's going on? Like, what are some of the reasons that people at Spiked Online are, are have these positions? Michael Fitzpatrick, do you want to take a stab at this question first? Well, I think that there's a, a, a group of people who are opposed to the restrictions on civil liberties that are attendant upon the public health measures that have been introduced to try and contain the, the spread of COVID. And there's a number of themes that have emerged in the narrative that justify that position. One is to suggest that the scale of the, and the threat of COVID is, is much less than it has been made out to be. The other one is to deny that lockdowns are an effective way of reducing the transmission of the virus. A third is to, to claim that the, uh, 
the number of locked, uh, what they call lockdown deaths, deaths resulting from the public health measures to, taken to restrict the spread, are in, uh, causing collateral damage to a greater extent than the virus itself. For example, by reducing uh, the uh, cancer referrals to hospitals, routine medical treatment, people turning up for the treatment of heart attacks and strokes at hospitals. And another one is then to, uh, what I think we've characterised as catastrophising about the lockdown itself, that the lockdown is causing economic, social, mental health and educational damage on an enormous scale, and that exceeds any of the possible damage that might result from the COVID epidemic itself. So the general narrative is to play down the threat of COVID and to play up the threat of the measures taken to contain it. So here in the U.S., we're used to hearing these sort of criticisms of public containment measures from the right wing, from Trump and his allies and sort of uh, libertarian personalities in the U.S. Um, but we're not, we don't hear those positions from the left. And I know, you know, Spiked Online doesn't represent most of the left in the U.K., but, you know, is there some ideological element to Spiked Online's um criticisms of containment measures that differentiates them from the right wing at all? Is it something that makes it leftist? I would say that the essential themes are similar. I mean, for example, the, the arguments, uh, the, the, uh, some of the more right-wing, traditionally right-wing libertarian uh, arguments have been more conspiratorial in their, in their outlook. But the general impression has been that, um, for example, claiming that the fatality rate of COVID is of the same order as seasonal flu, when according to most authoritative assessments is at least 10 times as great. Over the summer there was claims that when the mortality from COVID declined quite dramatically after the first wave, that the level of COVID, that there was widespread claim there wasn't going to be a second wave, and that the... the um, um, arguments that claims that we'd already reached herd immunity, certainly in big cities like London, and that therefore the measures could be greatly re re reduced. There were um, critics of the, of the lockdowns clung to those arguments, and then uh, the, the basically claiming that the, the public uh, health authorities were great, greatly exaggerating the scale of the threat in order to justify the imposition of authoritarian coercive measures. I think that was a recurrent theme, and that uh, was uh, you could find that theme in the traditionally conservative tabloid newspapers in the Spectator and among some of the contributors of Spiked Spark Online. John, do you want to jump in on either any of these questions? Uh, yeah, I mean, just to add that, I mean, I suppose Spiked, some people are writing for Spiked, as some conservatives, I suppose, as well, have, have made arguments which are on the surface of a left wing character. Um, and there are some left-wing points to be. There are some left-wing points to be made against lockdown. I mean, it is undoubtedly the case that some of the super rich have got even richer, um, and some of the poorer people have got poorer. I mean, lockdown. Well, you could say the pandemic's had that effect, and you could, to some extent, perhaps argue that measures taken economically and politically to deal with a pandemic to an extent have had that effect. So, we've carried on, haven't we, with you know super low interest rates, with asset <laughs> prices rising. So, anybody who had a lot of cash and threw it into the stock market in April or anybody who already owned a load of shares in tech companies in April has got a whole lot richer. Um, so there are those points to be made. There's also, there are left-wing critiques to be made of the way that lockdown measures have been enacted, not just their effects economically, but 
the point has been made, and it's a good point, it's a fair point by some left-wing people, that um, the government's done virtually nothing to offer support for people who have to isolate. So you've got a situation in which they say they want to control the spread, but simply paying people a reasonable amount of money to isolate for 10 days might have made a huge difference. And the government's been quite resistant to basic measures um, like that. I mean, in teaching, for example, they've also been very resistant to just spending a bit of money and opening some church halls, say, to kind of spread the kids around more and, you know, lower the infection, whereas they'll spend millions, billions on, on throwing money at test and trace in their kind of, you know, their crony crony companies. So there's all those points to make, which are, I think, perfectly good points. Um, and certainly some conservatives, some people in spite have made those points. Um, but otherwise, I would agree with the point Mike's making, which is that the kind of themes that you get from spite are quite similar to the themes from a kind of libertarian right direction. The idea it's a authoritarian imposition rather than a communal response. And that's been a theme right from the very beginning of all of them. There may be like two or three weeks where there was, a, there was a willingness to say there's something positive about the response to COVID. After that, it was just pretty much straight in with the idea that it's an authoritarian kind of, um, you know, measures to control and, and clamping down on people. Um, I think, and underestimating the fact that many people saw that measures needed to be taken and acted in a fairly kind of solid, you know, with solidarity to do, to achieve that. We haven't heard from our other guest, Ravi Bali yet. Ravi, do you have anything to add at this point? I've, I've got a question in terms of um, who was more likely to comply with the restrictions <clears throat> as they as they came in? Because a, a lot of people have been saying that um, in more affluent middle class areas, there was a, a greater willingness to go along with the restrictions, whereas in poorer and particularly immigrant communities to begin with, there was a great deal more scepticism about um, whether this was anything to be worried about. Do you, either of you have any comments on that? Well, I think it's, it's uh, evidently it's much easier for <clears throat> wealthy middle-class people to stay at home and work from home. If your work involves working in a factory or a, a small workshop or a sweatshop, then it's very difficult to work from home. If your income is very precarious and you depend on uh, casual labour to do it, then even if you're unwell, you're likely to turn up to work. So I think no question that all those measures... Um, bore down more heavily on poorer people. And that's, it. that's uh, the inevitable character of any measures of this sort. I don't think there's any less uh, willingness of poorer people to comply with the regulations, just it was more difficult for them to, to, to do it. And as, as the point John made, the, the government was not subsidising adequately people to self-isolate um, in, in such a way as could prevent the transmission of uh, the virus in poor communities. So people were able, were, people live in multi-generational households. They work in crowded circumstances. They have to travel to work in crowded circumstances. Um, they can't, not so reliant, they're reliant on public transport. So in all those ways, the, the whole, in a way, both the virus, both the infectious disease and the measures to contain it, bore down most heavily on poorer people. That is, it has to be said, is an eternal feature of infectious epidemics. And it was borne out by this one. Yeah, I mean, this is what, what really uh, is, is disturbing me is that the right wing has been able to weaponize the, the effect of 
lockdown containment measures by basically pitting health versus the economy, much the same way that they've been doing for decades on the environment versus the economy. And it's, it seems to me that the only left-wing way of dealing with this is to refuse to accept the terms in which they make these two things opposites. So, you know, I, I definitely understand and I'm, I'm totally sympathetic to all the criticisms of the governments not doing the things that would make it possible for, you know, people to contain the virus, you know, take the, the individual measures they need to help to contain the virus uh, without becoming destitute, you know, losing, losing their homes uh, and, and their, their livelihoods. Okay. But the, 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 it seems to me, I'd like to get your re- response to this. When Spiked Online raises this issue about the, you know, the, 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 the containment measures are worse than COVID, you know, f- uh, for a certain part of the population, it's very limited because they're not saying we need to do both. And here's the way to do both is to have the containment and to, you know, make people whole and to provide them with loans, to provide them with grants, etc. So it seems to me that they're just buying into and perpetuating this right-wing strategy of trying to pit a large section of the population against the containment measures, you know, and therefore against the elites, against the establishment, because people want to be able to have food on the table and so forth. Uh, is there any awareness on their part that, you know, they're playing into a, a right-wing strategy here? I don't think it's a, there's any political strategy behind it at all. I think it's a reaction. There's a sort of element of wishful thinking, which I think came out most strongly in relation to the general endorsement of the proposal of the Great Barrington Declaration. In other words, it's a, it's a hope that it's possible to respond to this virus in such a way as to uh, avoid the, uh, the the more onerous measures that uh, otherwise seem to be the only way of dealing with it. And so they said, look, you know, if you don't, if the 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 virus obviously preferentially affects older people, what we should do is try and impose some sort of separation, shelter the elderly people, and let the virus spread among the younger people. That would uh, generate a level of herd immunity, and it would provide a mechanism for protecting the elderly. Now, if that was a, a practicable, viable strategy, then it would have been great. It's just that it wasn't. It was, and neither at no stage could they clarify in, in practice how such a strategy could be implemented, what proportion of the population would need to be sheltered for that to be uh, possible, and indeed what level of um, disseminating transmission would be acceptable as a price of achieving that, because if we, if the, the, the virus was allowed to to um, spread unhindered among the, the whole younger, popular, longer, healthier population, the general assessment of that situation would be that it would rapidly uh, have overwhelmed the health service with the level of infection that would result from it, as indeed almost happened anyway, by measures, re- relaxation far short of those proposals. So I think, what the, I don't think there was a, a political strategy behind it at all, uh, behind the, the, the response of the people around Spike online. I think it was a, a strong element of wishful thinking that they could oppose the um, 
the, the onerous measures which we all uh, are, are very um, uh, unsympathetic towards, the restrictions on civil liberties and all the rest of it, um, but recognise that this, uh, in the unfortunate circumstances of a rapidly disseminating lethal virus was the only option to contain it. John, a lot of people were talking about the example of Sweden in the early days of the pandemic. Yes. And, and they were saying that, well, they seem to have a kind of, let's just go for herd immunity as quickly as possible and mm. allow everyone to get infected. And then everyone will have got a natural immunity from that. And, mm. you know, it's going to happen eventually. Can you just explain why it is that, or, or what you think of that as, a, as an initial proposition? Mm. Um, well, it's interesting, as you said at the beginning, there's been lots of, well, there's, you know, loads and loads of retrospectives beginning and people are also going out, digging out comments by um, Swedish health professionals, you know, the, the Swedish epidemiologists back in February and March. And it's true. Um, in February and March, you have statements about saying we just need to go for herd immunity. It's interesting, though, because to an extent, as Mike was saying, it's a li they also themselves were kind of had wishful thinking. So they were... There's an interview with Gisenk in about February, early March. Um, he was a kind of the more senior of the pair uh, with Tegnell. And he was saying, oh, we'll have herd immunity by May. And you think, he thought he said it'll be basically over by May. We'll have it by then. And interesting, in Sweden itself, Tegnell, the, the, he was the chief epidemiologist, given a lot of political authority by the government. And he, they were very a little bit opaque on, you know, what, how much immunity they, they thought they had. And he was trying to say, yes, there have been lots of this was by May time. There have been lots of deaths, but we've basically got there. And what was interesting about it, though, is that they themselves, rather like the UK, actually backed away from their bold uh, you know, plan in February, early March. So at the time, back in February, they're saying, essentially, this is a respiratory virus. We've got to essentially kind of take it on the chin. We'll have, we'll have, immune, we'll have population immunity by May started to get really quite bad there like hell they're not quite as bad as the uk but pretty bad actually a lot of care home deaths they introduced some fairly severe restrictions they um banned uh, well, they closed schools from 16 hours closed universities people were told to work from home if they could all of them were similar to the uk large gatherings were banned some indoor dining was banned they took some local councils, took some rather graphic measures. They tipped a load of manure in a park. So they said, they said well, we're not closing a park. We're just going to tip a load of manure in it to make it not a place to hang out. So all sorts of things happened and lots of restrictions were brought in. And then come the summer, rather like here, they started to say, well, maybe we've got immunity. But then come the autumn, again, the same thing happened. They, they started bringing in more clear restrictions again. So I think you could say that Sweden didn't go for the absolute full lockdown the UK did. But you see the same pattern where when it clearly was getting bad, they introduced quite strong restrictions, then eased in the summer and then came back again in the autumn and winter. As to why they didn't go for the full lockdown compared to here, um, there's lots of arguments and debate about it and what's the right comparison. I mean, I think one general point to make about this is that and it's, to an extent, countries have followed the severity of the disease. So the UK was particularly badly hit in March. In a, kind of, in a similar way that New York was, say, um, you know, it's a global city, vastly connected, um, and it got, the disease got a really strong grip. Um, 
and it was took it took a long time to get on top of it with a lot of deaths. To an extent, the same thing did happen in Sweden, but to a lesser extent, somewhat. They also had some natural advantages. They got the, the highest, the, probably the biggest one is they got the highest single home occupancy, I think, and certainly within Europe, perhaps, maybe, I don't know the global figures, but it's, it's a strikingly high single, single, single home occupancy. Uh, Stockholm is quite a dense city. People say, you know, they say it's not that, but the rest of the country is also quite spread out. So even but this occupancy is quite a big thing. They're generally a reasonably compliant population, so they could achieve quite strong social distancing without necessarily having to have formal laws in every area of life. So one way or another, it without quite the measures of the UK. On the other hand, they were also badly hit, and the measures were, were more severe and more illiberal than some of the uh, champions of Sweden um, would have you believe, really. And again, just to kind of go back to what, echo on the same point, but talking about what Mike was saying, I think the main thing is that for a while, people thought we could kind of push through it. Giesenk did in February, Boris Johnson did in early March. But it's when it became clear that it was just too fatal at an individual level, too infectious and therefore too fatal at a collective level that these measures were brought in. And the countries which were hit the hardest tend to bring in harder measures. I mean, you could point perhaps to, I'm trying to think of countries in the world or people in the world who were prepared to say it's really bad, but we're still going to push through it. I mean, obviously, the, you could say Bolsonaro perhaps in Brazil is, is of that kind. But certainly in the UK, there's virtually nobody who was prepared to say, yes, you know what? The infection fatality rate is 10 times flu, but I don't care. We're going to push through. It's a really striking thing that nearly all of the lockdown sceptics are also, to an extent, COVID sceptics. They all want to downplay it. You could say they all kind of lack the courage of the convictions in a way. You know, they, they're not the full Bolsonaro. They're not prepared to say, just get a grip, you know, because they just realise it's too bad. And they realise how unpalatable that message would be. So they're constantly scratching around trying to downplay COVID. But when the reality is staring them in the face in March uh, last year, or in January this year, it's striking how quiet these people go. So we have, you know, we have people shouting again now, we had people shouting in the summer, but in March they were pretty quiet, and in January they were pretty quiet as well, actually, um, when the reality of NHS being overloaded was there and it was playing for all to see. You know, like here in the US or in, in uh, Brazil, it seems obvious when Trump or Bolsonaro is downplaying um, the, the danger of COVID that it's purely for, you know, political advantage and short-term political advantage. You know, why do people, the people on Spiked do it? Like, what is the, is it some ideological predisposition? Is it just hoping to like get some uh, more views by expressing like a populist point of view? Is there some kernel of like reason behind this sort of skepticism? Uh, the, the, the ideological preposition or presupposition of it is the, uh, the established view that these public harm, there's been a whole history of them going back over the last 20 years and most recently they're going back to AIDS and the mad cow disease and swine flu that the, the, the narrative is that public health authorities promote fears and scares around these sort of issues as a device for both bolstering their own legitimacy and, in a sense, for legitimising a more authoritarian sort of a uh, regime within society as a whole. And I think that narrative was one which was uh, t 
taken off the peg and applied to the COVID scenario. It didn't, it didn't work for the COVID scenario because these other threats were greatly hyped up and they were, they were very insubstantial. And as the, 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 the familiar saying goes, the, the boy who cried wolf and many times was and then the wolf finally came and the wolf did finally come because covid was every bit as lethal and as transmissible as the early projections said whereas the early projections around swine flu were hopelessly inaccurate and earlier scares about bird flu and other diseases were hopelessly inaccurate the projections about the possible death rate of, of covid were remarkably accurate indeed to some extent were superseded by the actual events you know, the, um, the Patrick Valance, the chief scientific officer, said at an early stage in 20,000 deaths would be a, a good outcome from COVID. And people thought that was rather scaremongering. And the traditional discourse was scaremongering was a device to promote fears, to legitimise a repressive policy. 20,000, as we know, has now been exceeded by a factor of uh, half a dozen. But I think that was the general rather dogmatic approach that some of the people around Spike took in response to COVID. Oh, it's another health scare. They're greatly exaggerating. It's not really a big threat. It's only the same as seasonal flu. It's a, not, uh, we'll soon get to herd immunity. The whole thing is a big fuss about, not very much. It's a, all promoting a culture of fear. And, um, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, it's all scaremongering and, and greatly exaggerated. And the, the and and clinging then to any scientific, apparently various scientific authorities emerge who would say, yeah, would confirm these views so they could cherry pick from the research papers coming out to say, oh, it's not such a serious threat, it's not so transmissible, it's, it's, um, the, the claims of its, its, its mortality rate have greatly exaggerated. And so I think that's the, was the, outlook that influenced some of the people around Spiked and caused them to lose their way in response to this whole crisis. And the, the irony of it, of course, is, is that the claims that the government wanted to introduce an authoritarian policy were actually the exact opposite of what the government... People like Trump and Boris Johnson's initial response to the thing was, don't worry about this, we've got this all under control, don't panic, keep it all... You know, we've got great scientists, we've got the world-leading um, public health system, we, we've got this under control. They might not be able to deal with this in China, but we can handle this. And as we know, and their, their whole inclination was against, uh, especially Boris Johnson, didn't want to have restrictions on social and economic activities and closed schools and all the rest of it. That was the last thing they wanted to do, but they were forced into it by the sheer reality of the epidemic and particularly the impact it was having on the National Health Service, which was very nearly overwhelmed by it and only managed to, to survive it by drastically scaling down routine activities, opening up specialist facilities and in various other ways just about managing to cling on uh, through the crises as they happened. One of the, I, th I think it was John's piece in, in Medium, made an issue of this uh, spike, you know, trope about the politics of fear. E even though they're now saying that, that COVID is real, they're still decrying the politics of fear. And it, 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 I'm having trouble with that, actually. If I mean, if, if the, the, the magnitude of the, the, the you know, deaths and, and, and stuff from COVID is as real as most of us think it is, who, who's ramping up fears that uh, shouldn't be ramped up? Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, 
there are some peculiarities to Spite, but there's also some very similarities with lots of other people who argue quite similar things. So it is hard to know what's driving what, and, you know, you don't want to go too far to, to psychology or whatever. I mean, what I would maybe add to what Mike's saying, I think there is another overlapping or overlaying point to make, which is that, and this is, again, a preoccupation of spite, but a preoccupation of many probably on the right, which is that, you know, they believe we're living under a kind of zombie capitalism. You know, uh, as they see it, the state is propping up all industry and then it leads to kind of people feeding off that and certain people are getting rich because of that. And it's it's not very creative. And I think you, Andrew, will recall you were over in the UK and we, I think, took part in a discussion. Well, I was in a discussion with you and I'm not sure if we were in the same one where we discussed Phil, Mullen, Phil Mullen's book, Creative Destruction. Um, so there is a a kind of idea around there, which is we've been going on, that capitalism's on kind of state life support and COVID is seen as just continuing this, whereas many people would like to see a kind of Schumpeterian creative destruction, which they associate in a sense with freedom, um, economically and politically. So there is a kind of link there to an economic thing that um, really they want the world to open up some, some on the right want economies to open up, freedom to, to reign. And they see this as all part of a continuation of a pattern of not just politics of fear, but also of politics of state paternalism, state control, uh, both of social and economic, uh, social life as well as economic life. So I think there's that theme running through the whole thing as well. That, that, so you've got this kind of mushing together of a idea that we've been run by public health experts and we're also you know, you're strengthening a form of capitalism, which is just state, a state run state dependency system. Um, and COVID is just a continuation, an extreme example of that. So the argument then becomes that that is more dominant than scientific facts. And they and some people believe that science, the science we've been told about COVID is distorted by that pattern of politics um, and therefore that's where the exaggeration comes from, because it's it exaggerated in order to sustain that pattern of politics. Or even if it's not deliberate, they're saying that just everyone's inclinations is to go in that direction. Um, so they all think it's exaggerated. But as I say, when occasionally the reality really stares people in the face, these people do tend to go quiet. It is noticeable how quiet people tend to went in January and then all, and to an extent, you know, last March. Um, and we can see it now with on the continent, I, mean, in, I say on the continent, in, you know, in, in, in mainland Europe, um, where you know the cases are rising again, and they're facing the same kind of problems that the UK faced in January. Uh, they may be able to finesse it with with summer and spring, with spring and summer coming on, but the reality of COVID just keeps reasserting itself, um, you know, through all the politics and through all these debates. I mean, I've I've got a question for for both of you now, Mike and John, which is that. Mike, you, you spoke about how the the threat posed by previous uh, infections, such as swine flu or avian flu or what have you, were greatly exaggerated. And John, you've spoken or written in the past about the precautionary principle and how taking the worst case scenario and projecting that into the future and anticipating that is what you need to um, basically be prepared for is not necessarily the best way for society to organize. And I'm just thinking, if you're faced with something that's newly emerging, what is wrong with that precautionary approach if you are dealing with something that you don't know 
there, there's, it's, it's still at too early a stage to be able to have hard data that will give you that much information. Is the precautionary principle always a bad thing? For a good example of the damage caused by the precautionary principle in action, you only have to look at the recent suspension of the uh, Oxford-AstraZeneca uh, COVID vaccine in various parts of Europe, where the most minor association of a serious side effect of the vaccine led to the suspension of the programme, with the result that the the, uh, which has subsequently reversed uh, on a precautionary that, that's a, a clear cut illustration of the precautionary principle in action oh there's a potential problem with this we should suspend it until, until we know for definite when actually the even the most preliminary in, investigation of the figures showed that closest association I know there was no causative relationship whatsoever between this thromboembolic phenomena and the COVID vaccine but in the meantime the vaccine's been suspended. Confidence in the vaccine, already a bit shaky in many European countries, has been very badly affected by it. So the, the actual consequence of that will be the uh, is already significantly slowing down a progress of the vaccine, which is already proceeding very slowly in Europe by comparison with the United Kingdom. The consequence unquestionably will be a significant increase in mortality that would, could have been avoided as a consequence of this use, this deployment of the precautionary principle. So, you know, the precautionary principle is a real thing. It is a real part of the wider culture of fear and an outlook of cautionary uh, outlook towards uh, society, which is, has been prevalent over the last 20 or 30 years and is unquestionably a pernicious influence and reflects a diminution of the whole concept of human subjectivity and its capacity to act in the world. You know, that is a real thing. But it's there's a sort of tendency in some of these discussions that to say, oh, we've got the COVID, the COVID uh, viral, COVID-19 disease here, and we've got the culture of fear over here. But these are not commensurate quant categories. You know, you've got to, we need to work out the mediations of the relationship over particular instances. And I think this vaccine thing is a good illustration of that. But in the, in the wider uh, question, the, the actual reality of the COVID virus uh, seems to have been a, been a much more significant force in society than the culture of fear around it. And, and what about the idea that there's been the, the process of approving these vaccines has been rushed, which is why a lot of people are suspicious of their kind of efficacy and their safety. How, how would you respond to that? Well, well, I respond to this every day because I've been working in a COVID vaccination centre for the last three months. And you know, people say, well, it's been rushed. And, I, you know, you say, thank God it's been rushed. There's a thousand people a day in January are dying of COVID in this country. So we need to, there is some urgency about the development of a vaccine. And it's one of its, the great, uh, it's a world historical achievement to have developed a vaccine at this pace. And actually one which is, has been shown to be remarkably effective. So, yes, it has been rushed. Thank God. It needed to be rushed. Does that make you question its safety at all? No, <laughs> because 
what's been very clear is the, the mechanism of its approval has proceeded, and this is the innovative character of this introduction, by conducting uh, in, uh, in parallel what traditionally has been done serially, so that all these processes of development and, and manufacturing and approval and testing have been co conducted in a, in a very efficient and um, timely manner. You know, it goes if you throw enough money at something, and that's the real distinctive feature about this program, you can achieve in a shorter period of time uh, an effective result without compromising on safety. And, you know, there have been 25 million doses of this vaccine uh, been used in this country over the last three months. And so, you know, if there was going to be any major um, acute complications, I think it would have been apparent by now. And uh, we're, we're very pleased to say that we haven't seen such complications. Can we guarantee there won't be in the long run? Of course not, you know. We'll have to wait and see on that. But the, the balance of benefit to risk, I think, still lies very heavily in terms of using the vaccine and the, and the vaccines that we've already got. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment, but first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. 
To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Ravi, in our uh, preparation for this discussion, you had a question about uh, people who are ideologically predisposed to like a libertarian individualist perspective and the difficulty of that perspective really having any function within uh, this sort of collective pandemic problem and con collective containment measures and the sort of sense of like collective responsibility involved with that. Do you want to flesh out that question a little more? It, it just seems that if you are trying to question uh, like government lockdowns, and I know Mike's article on Medium was saying that there, there needs to be um, questioning of whatever government measures come out. And the justification isn't completely led by the science. And there's, there's supposed to be some level of balancing out what is necessary to contain the virus and, and what is an overreach in terms of restricting people's freedom in a way that isn't really going to make much difference. And it seems that if you're talking about the, the right people to go about their lives unimpeded, then obviously if you have a, a libertarian individualist approach which says that we accept no restrictions on our, um, on our kind of freedoms for whatever justification, it's it's going to run counter to the need to stop the spread of the virus. And I, I'm just thinking that if you have that kind of approach, then you can't conduct a public health kind of initiative, can you? And I just wondered what you think of, of that as a, those are things that have to be held in the balance, don't they? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, of course that's absolutely correct. I mean, uh, but obviously there are, then also there are lots of tensions. So, I mean, uh, the most basic level, public health is a collective enterprise, you know, and disease in particular, communicable disease is a particularly, uh, you know, obvious public health collective question as well as being a, an individual threat. So you can't deal with it without recognising that you're a threat to somebody else and they're a threat to somebody else, etc. So this has kind of come up, you know, all the time in debates about face masks or visiting care homes, you know, so there's some really difficult decisions. You can have people in care homes who are quite old who may not have many years left. So the argument seems really strong. They should have the right to be visited by their relatives. On the other hand, if you, a care home in particular, if you let a virus rip through a care home, then um, it's deadly for other people. So it's it sounds nice at one level to say, I'm prepared to take the risk, you know, I'm the rugged individual, or I'm just a person who's just getting on in years and wants to see my grandkids, you know. Um, but it, it, inevitably, with a, with these kind of disease, this year, you know, there's an interdependency, so you can't logically pose it as an individual freedom matter. Having said that, of course, restrictions brought in, especially by a government that, um, that I am not supportive of, and or if you live under even more authoritarian regimes around the world, then clearly measures to contain a disease which could be perceived to be completely right and proper public health measures can also be very authoritarian measures at the same time. So it's, there isn't a simple solution to this. There isn't a simple argument one way or another. But the, the basic libertarian claim is clearly nonsense with a, when you talk about public health and a, and a communicable disease. And public health measures, COVID 
was just too bad to ignore. You know, there may be some circumstances in which you say, you know what, we should ignore this. The risks are ma- the risks aren't that big. The health systems can cope. So we just push on. And once it became clear COVID was too serious for that, then some public health measures were required. And so then, then you're into a debate. And there are, there are elements of trade-off involved. Well, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, this is a feature. Any form of quarantine, a measure to restrict the, the spread of an infectious disease, involves restrictions on liberties. There's no way of getting and, and therefore it's always a question of balance. How serious is the threat of the disease? What is its fatality rate? What is its rate of transmission? What is its mode of transmission? All these factors are, have to, are on one side of the thing. The other side of it has to be considered. What is the impact of the restrictions and how restrictive are they? And these, uh, this is a matter that has to be the subject of very close democratic control and accountability and obviously our mechanisms of democratic control and accountability of anything in our society at the moment are somewhat limited and and uh, deficient in in all sorts of ways but it's no i mean this is a, one of the arguments that's become popularized by lord sumption in this country a, a retired judge of a great legal eminence who argues that everybody should be allowed to make their own decisions in relation to COVID, which I think, as John suggests, is a nonsense because it's not just a question of you deciding what your risk individually you're prepared to tolerate because you're moving around and about in society and attending social uh, events is, is not just a question of your well-being, it's a potential threat to other people's well-being and therefore it has to be decided at the level of society as a whole. And society as a whole has to decide on, given the, the threat of a very serious disease, whether it's appropriate to have restrictions on public transport, on public gatherings, etc., uh, etc. Et and uh, as John said, there is no simple answer to any of these things. And people who categorically say, I'm opposed to all restrictions, I'm a free, freedom-loving individual, is uh, not a useful contribution to this discussion. What would you say to people who I'm inclined to be sympathetic to who just won't even accept the, the, the terms of the debate, won't accept the concept of freedom that's put forward. Uh, I mean, for instance, I was reading a, this new piece in Salon uh, yesterday by uh, Amanda Marcotte, and she points to this um, Republican pollster, a really horrible person named Frank Luntz, but he's been doing focus groups about uh, of, of Republican voters, Trumpites, you know, why they don't want to get vaccinated. And somebody just said very matter-of-factly, we're not all in this together. And she goes on and she says, the right-wing belief that, quote, freedom, close quote, depends on others having to die for pointless reasons now manifests in all sorts of ways. And she talks about the right-wing whining over wearing masks in grocery stores or being asked to vaccinate because the idea that others must die to spare them the slightest inconvenience uh, is a bedrock belief of modern conservatism. So, I mean, I guess the question in my mind is, why should we even give credence to that kind of concept of freedom that she's characterizing? I don't think unfairly. I mean, Karl Marx put it, he says, look, freedom is so much the essence of human beings that nobody's against freedom. What, what some people are is against the freedom of other people. They're always in favor of their own freedom. So why should we even be talking about, you know, these notions of freedom wherein I can do whatever I want and restrict other people's freedom in the sense like, you know, well, they're going to die because of how I choose to live my life unimpeded. So the, 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 the question is, to my mind, a very basic one. 
do we want to accept the terms of freedom versus public health that the, the right wing is using to frame the, the issues? You know, we live in a society where people are have adopted it. It's a very fragmented and atomized society. People take the, the, all sorts of extreme views to extreme conclusions, and that we have to engage with these discussions. I and mean, that's the, the reality of the situation. We have to engage in a public discourse with people who are anti-vax, who are people who are anti the sort of sensible restrictions that we all think are, are sensible to deal with the disease. That people take all these views. Well, you know, we have to engage in these discussions. You know, through whatever mechanisms that we have to. to do them. I think there's any point bemoaning the reality that people adopt extreme and what apparently irrational outlooks on these various things. We just have to keep engaging in the discussion. Yeah, but one way it seems to me to engage in that discussion is is to say, well, you're talking about freedom, but that's freedom for you. It's not freedom for everybody that you're referring to. So, so why, so, so why should uh, I, I have to uh, take that on board? <laughs> well, I agree. Obviously, there's freedom as a as a big political, not a big as a political theme. There's also freedom at, at, a, at a very simple individualistic level of wanting to do things, you know, and lockdown stopping you doing things. So. Our liberties have been curtailed quite strongly through this. You know, people can't visit sick parents in or grandparents in care homes. You know, that's quite a thing. So I think I have some sympathy with people finding that very unusual, very frustrating. And the same goes for really, you might say, mundane thing. You know, teenagers want to socialise. Now, you could just say, get a grip. It's only been a year. You know, but a year is a long time in a teenager's life. So it does all these things affect different people in a different way. And some of the things people are chaffing against, you know, you don't have to be a right-wing anti-vaxxer to chaff against some of these restrictions um, and to realise that they are quite an imposition. So I would probably want to tease things apart a little bit. I mean, certainly I'm struck in the UK. I'm a little bit surprised that people you might think are fairly sensible are voicing anti-vaxxer sentiment. I mean, Mike and I were talking about this group that's kind of pulling together all the kind of some of the critics of lockdown in academic world, the heart group. And, you know, they've, they've, they've carried a straight, strongly anti-vax article, which is quite, I was a little bit surprised by. So those ideas are definitely there, though maybe I would be proved wrong, but I, I will be surprised if Spike starts becoming anti-vax, for example. So that kind of bold, libertarian, all government's terrible, I'm not going to get vaxxed, all this kind of stuff, you know, the the. Uh, Bill Gates conspiracy, putting a chip in me, stuff, all this stuff, nonsense. There is that strand, but there are plenty of ordinary people who find lockdown oppressive, and in some ways it is oppressive. So I do think we, you know, we do need to disentangle this a bit and, and accept that there's kind of different shades of grey in this without obviously going to the bigger picture that Andrew's raising, which is what is freedom, more collective nations. These are all very important points, but there's also just that simple, grounded desire to do ordinary things, um, which is... Not a terrible sentiment. You know, it, we are living through an unprecedented restriction on liberties. Necessary in many ways, of course, in my view. But these things will keep coming up. I mean, now, if the, what if the government in the UK doesn't start? You were saying at the beginning, Ravi, that 21st of June, it's meant to be all over. Well, what if the government decides, and some people are saying, hey, should we carry on being cautious? But I think it becomes a legitimate argument. You know, what is the balance between continuing restrictions and 
and allowing people to start living a more normal life again once, once say, more than half the population is vaccinated. That's a debate you've got to have. And it's not obviously wrong to say that these restrictions aren't making sense if people, you know, if they were to continue. So um, there are some quite sensible debates and discussions to be had, I think, in that area, as well as there are, of course, the people you're talking about, um, the absolutely committed opponents of any kind of government action. Well, and it seems like much more than just an abstract question of like fidelity to truth telling and being responsible for your um, statements in like an abstract philosophical way. I mean, people's lives are on the line. And if someone is spreading misinformation and dis, you know, disinformation about the dangers of COVID, they are contributing to the spread of COVID and people are dying because of those statements. So um, for, you know, for people to hide behind this sort of rhetoric about freedom of speech to say, oh, we're just asking questions to not retract their statements when they've been shown to be wrong, to go quiet, as you said, for a few months when there's a spike in cases and then start um, talking uh, their nonsense again when the, the, the pandemic is, is easing up. That seems to me like a very negligent and dangerous way of behaving. Well, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think there's, there's got to be a space for people to question mainstream science in a very vigorous way. But as you say, you've got to back up what you're saying. You've got to, when it, the evidence piles up and it seems that you're wrong, you've got to either accept that or keep arguing in some way. And I mean, Mike knows these people better than I do, some of them in the UK. But there's been some people going, you know, Mike was talking about the kind of like history of health panics. And there are there's a kind of hardcore of people in the UK who've actually done quite well by being been stubborn and resistant to the mainstream message because sometimes it has been wrong but there comes a point when obviously when you if you just keep on going and can't justify what you're saying then it becomes a real problem and i think certainly the people some of the people on the great barrington some other people in the uk and i'm sure in america as well yeah it becomes it should be clear to them if not to everybody else that if they can't back up what they're saying they are doing damage and i think it's legitimate to point that out so i would agree with you on that well, uh, this has been a great conversation. So, Ravi, Michael, John, thank you all for joining us today on Radio Free Humanity. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies. Mm-hmm.